the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. ABN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Simply the best portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Incredible events that that a Jewish woman, disobedient woman, would become the queen. That in the providence of God, she was exceptionally beautiful. God worked in the heart of the king, and she found favor in his eyes. It's true that Esther must have been very pretty, but there were many other beautiful girls from whom King Xerxes could have chosen his queen. It was God who caused him to favor Esther above all the others. Hello, and welcome back to this study on the book of Esther here on Verse by Verse. It has been an eye-opening series thus far as we have seen God use disobedient Jews, pagan kings, and superstitious princes to work out his great plan. Let's join our teacher, Steve Kreloff, as he shows how Esther needed God to keep on turning the king's heart to favor her. I would like you to turn to Esther chapter 4. In your Old Testament, the great book of Esther, I have found through the study of the Word of God that when God wants to do something great, He usually takes a person and He works through that person. Rarely does He work around people, but He takes a person and He works through that individual. When God wanted to raise up a nation through which He would reveal Himself through the Word of God and then eventually the Messiah coming, He called a man by the name of Abraham, one man God worked through to establish a nation. And when that nation needed deliverance as they were in bondage in Egypt, he raised up another man by the name of Moses. And when that nation, that same nation needed guidance, he took a young boy by the name of David, a shepherd, and he said, I need a shepherd to be a king so as to guide my people Israel. And when that same nation fell away and apostatized and followed after false gods, he raised up a man by the name of Elijah the prophet to call that nation back to repentance and back to Jehovah God. God raised up each of these people when it seemed like midnight had struck. At the midnight moments of history, God always has his man and his woman who he has been preparing behind the scenes for such a time as this. In our study of the book of Esther, we've reached what I would call midnight. This nation that God called into existence is about to be exterminated, about to be wiped out, about to be driven off of the face of the earth. King Xerxes has issued an irreversible law, and I say irreversible because you could not change the law of the Medes and the Persians. You've heard that expression. We, we use it today, which means it cannot be reversed. The king has issued an irreversible law to kill every Jewish person in the kingdom. And the kingdom at that point was the world. 
127 provinces, and it stretched from India to Ethiopia. It was a magnificent kingdom in terms of size and population and depth. And so when you're talking about killing all the Jews in the kingdom, you're talking about killing all the Jews that have ever lived. If you kill all the Jews that have ever lived, then what happens to the promises of God to Israel? And what happens to, to the future of Messiah coming? And so it looks like midnight. But God knows all about it. God knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And so he planted his instruments for deliverance in the kingdom to preserve his people. We said that the theme of Esther is, is the providence of God. If you want to understand what the, what the message of Esther is, it is the providence of God, which means that God sees ahead and he provides. I mean, that's where we get the word provision, provide, providence. God sees ahead and he has... He is powerful enough to provide for what he sees is coming in the future. Providence. And we're tracing the providence of God through the book of Esther. And that's how you begin to understand the narrative. You trace the patterns as it comes to the forefront. And we saw when we first opened the book, that you can see the providence of God in the promotion of Esther. Here she is, a woman, a, a Jew, a disobedient Jewess, when I say disobedience, I mean that she should never have stayed in Persia. She must have been born in Persia. Her name is Persian. In Hebrew, it is Hadassah. But in Persian, it is Esther. The word is star, and we call it Esther. This Jewish girl, born and raised in Persia, disobedient. There's no evidence that she was regenerated, that she was a true, righteous Jewish woman. No evidence in the book. But God takes this person, disobedient as she is, disobedient in her relationship with the, uh, the king, a pagan king before marriage. She had relations with him. Disobedient in the fact that she uh, ate non-kosher foods. Disobedient in the fact that she never tells anyone her identity as a Jewish woman. In spite of that, she's now promoted to be queen of Persia. Incredible. Incredible events that that a Jewish woman, disobedient woman, would become the queen. That Xerxes would, would throw, really, just throw away Vashti, his queen, and would promote this Jewish woman to be the queen. And God's providence is in this, and the providence of God. She was exceptionally beautiful. God worked in the heart of the king, and she found favor in his eyes. Then we saw the hand of God in providence through the plot of Haman. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, hears a common assassination attempt. He's sitting at the gate, which means he's, he's a judge in the land, and he overhears an assassination plot. Not out of the ordinary. Uh, it happened all the time in Persia. I mean, I've said before, you can pick up the newspaper every Thursday to find out who tried to kill the king. But by the providence of God, Mordecai overhears it, tells Esther, she makes sure the king knows it's written down in the royal books, and yet at this point, Mordecai doesn't receive his reward. And that's strange, too. Usually, he would get a reward. And Xerxes was a man who really honored loyalty. Providence of God. His promotion is coming. It's just delayed. Not only that, but in the plot of Haman, we see the, the hand of God in that 
He rolls the dice. He casts lots to find out when is he going to exterminate the Jewish people because he was so enraged at the Jewish people because Mordecai refused to bow down to him. Now imagine such a, a silly thing, but that, that just drove him wild. And he not only wants to kill Mordecai, he wants to kill Mordecai's people. And so he rolls the dice. And in the providence of God, because God controls the dice, he's in charge of Las Vegas. The date is set for a year later. And that's great because it gives the Jewish people enough time to, uh, to find a solution. And in the providence of God, it gives them the time to have a counter decree that would be made. I mean, it's tremendous. God is in charge of time. Now, tonight we want to look not at the promotion of Esther, not at the plot of Haman, but the preservation of Israel. And that's really what this book is dealing with, God's providence as he preserves the nation. God is going to take Esther's promotion and Haman's plot, and he's going to bring these two together to preserve his precious nation, the apple of his eye. So if you'll turn to chapter 4, if you're there, we'll begin looking at verse 1, the preservation of Israel. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, and remember what had been done, the decree to kill all the Jews. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. You say, wait a minute, is this guy having a temper tantrum? No, he's not having a temper tantrum. In ancient times, the wearing of, of sackcloth and ashes and, and the crying aloud publicly signified deep mourning and grief. This is a very common occurrence. In fact, if you have been to a Jewish funeral or have been to an Arab funeral, while they may not dress in sackcloth and ashes, you will know what I mean about crying aloud, bitter wailing. It's a horrible thing to hear, but this is what was going on. It always indicated in Old Testament times lamentation for, for either personal or national disasters. This was reserved for the crucial moments in life. It was penitence for sins or a special prayer for deliverance. And all that was wrapped up in great grief and sorrow. It was not necessarily an indication of righteousness. Remember when Lazarus died, the Lord Jesus went to the tomb and, and there were people who were weeping and, and bitterly crying aloud. It did not indicate that they were redeemed and they were righteous. It just indicated they were in deep mourning. That's all it indicates. In Mordecai's case, it was a public announcement of his grief over the new law to kill all the Jewish people. That's all it is. And perhaps, we don't know this, but perhaps Mordecai was especially grief-stricken because it, is his, it was his refusal... And I say proud refusal, arrogant refusal to bow down to Haman that instigated the prime minister's wrath. So maybe there's a sense in which he's feeling especially guilty about it. I think he deserved to feel guilty about it. I don't think there, and I told you before, I don't think there was anything wrong had he bowed down. There was no idolatry involved. We know that Persian kings never said they were, they were deity. Um, Daniel had no problem in, in honoring a Persian king. Nehemiah had no problem in it, and they were far more godly than Mordecai. No, I think it was just he was rebellious, and I think there was national pride at stake. And I think that uh, Haman was also rebellious and there was national pride at stake and personal pride at stake in him. So they're very similar. you got two proud individuals and who's going to give? Now verse 2 says this, And he went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Now that's in just so far, and then he couldn't go any farther. Far as the king's gate. Why? Because the sight of sorrow and distress might upset the king. Isn't that too bad? 
poor king couldn't be upset. It's the kind of mentality that says, look, everybody be happy. I don't want any sorrow around me or I might get sad. Spoiled king just might affect me. And, you know, you did not get sorrowful around the king ordinarily. Let me show you this. Will you turn to the book just before Esther, which is Nehemiah? Nehemiah chapter 2, and you'll see what I mean. I mean, when you were sorrowful in the presence of a king, you might be in big trouble. Nehemiah chapter 2, which takes place, by the way, 30 years later, if you want to know where it takes place. It takes place, even though it comes before the book of Esther in your Bibles, it takes place about 30 years after the book of Esther. Esther fits in, by the way, chronologically between Ezra chapter 6 and 7. But in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, we read, And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, it's not Xerxes, it's Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and Nehemiah says, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? Nehemiah said, and he was the cupbearer of the, of the king, and Nehemiah is basically saying, up to this point, I was not sad, but now I was sad, and the king said, why? You're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. And look at Nehemiah's response. Then I was very much afraid. See, you didn't get sad in the presence of the king. He wanted everything happy, you know, and he just didn't want mourning around him. So that kind of gives you an indication, a feel for this this time in ancient history that you just, you know, if you had a problem, don't, don't go near the king with it. Verse 3 says, and in each, chapter 4 of Esther, and in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. So it wasn't just Mordecai who reacted this way. The decree had gone out and all the Jews were reacting this way. This is a tremendously pathetic scene. Jews all over the empire in great distress over their coming doom. Imagine if we got a decree uh, from, from the president or some, you know, the Senate or Congress said that uh, in a few months all the Christians were going to be killed. There would be some pretty important prayer meetings going on, right? We forget everything else and say, let's have a prayer meeting. That gives you a feel for what they were going through. And they had no hope unless they knew the Lord as their Redeemer. They had no hope of eternal life. And so tremendous, tremendous distress. Usually uh, prayer accompanied fasting, but there's no mention of it here. No mention of anyone praying to God for deliverance. And I take it that for the most part, it's because they were a disobedient people. They were not concerned about God. There's no indication of, of prayer along with fasting. Maybe some did, but I take it for the most part, they did not. Just tremendous weeping and wailing, but no prayer. But in spite of their lack of prayer and concern for God, you know, God was concerned for them. God loved them. In fact, he said to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He would never change that love, even if they were disobedient. And because he's concerned about them, he's going to start putting things together to preserve them. Up to this point... In the book of Esther, only the stage has been set for God's deliverance. Behind the scenes, God has been at work moving pieces around and events around and people around and all of these things. Now the cameras are set. Now it's as if you can hear the directors say, you know, lights, action, camera, everything's in order. 
Get everything rolling. The action's about to take place, and that's what happens. Verses 4 and 5. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen wreathed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth uh, from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Remember, I, I just told you that everybody and all the Jews in the empire were wailing and were upset, all the Jews but one, Esther. Esther doesn't know what's going on. Her maidens, the eunuchs who attended her, were so isolated from the affairs of the empire, they don't know what's happening. That's an incredible thing. She's just isolated. They, they didn't know what was going on. And, and so she sends some clothes to Mordecai and says, you're embarrassing me. I don't know, maybe that's what was in her mind, or why are you going through this? And he refuses it. All she knows is that her maidens and eunuchs have seen Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes, but she doesn't know why. So she sends a trusted servant to Mordecai to learn what's going on. And verse 6 says, So Hathak went to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that uh, Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa, that is the capital city, for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. You know what? Someone else knows she's a Jewess now. Before, only Mordecai knew, and only Esther. Now, her trusted servant knows that she's a Jewish woman. Things are beginning to happen. Things are beginning to roll. And it's self-explanatory what's taken place. Mordecai simply says, you go back to Esther and you tell her she must go and, and, and plead with the king to deliver, his, deliver her people. Verse 9. And Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. You can see it's going back and forth with the messenger. All the king's servants and people and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And she says, I've not been summoned to come to the king for, for about a month, for 30 days. What's going on? The law in Persia said that no uninvited guests were allowed into the king's presence. This was primarily to protect the king. Remember I told you they were trying to assassinate this, this fellow all the time. You were not allowed into the king's presence unless he summoned you. And this was also true with his wife, which kind of tells you that they did not have the closest of relationships. She says, I haven't been summoned for one month. I don't know what his attitude is towards me. I mean, this is a fellow who cuts people in half, remember? This is a fickle man. This is a man who, who embraces people for loyalty and then would, would chop up their son in just a moment's notice. This is a man who didn't like the way Vashti treated him and just simply disposed of her. The only way you could survive 
going into the king's presence if he didn't call for you was if he extended a golden scepter, kind of a rod, rod of, of gold to that person. And it showed if he did that, that, that the king approved and welcomed you and you were not in danger of being killed. But if he didn't do that, then you were in big trouble. Now you say, oh, he certainly wouldn't kill his wife. Yeah, he would. He certainly would. He got rid of Vashti. He cuts people in half. Sure, he'd kill his wife. Probably depending on the kind of mood he was in. Esther hasn't been summoned for a month's time. She doesn't know what his attitude is towards her. Fickle man. And so, what Esther is saying in verse 11, I've not been summoned. She's saying to Mordecai, if I do what you want me to do and go to the king and plead for my people, it may mean death for me. She is basically saying to him, I can't do this. You don't understand. You don't know what you're asking. He says, go and plead for your people to save us. And Esther says, if I do that, it may mean my death. That's the thought here. Verse 12, and they related Esther's words to Mordecai, going back and forth, back and forth. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you were in the king's uh, that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not attained royalty for such a time as this. It is difficult to know exactly what Mordecai meant. Difficult to know exactly what he meant. Did he mean that she would die because she also was Jewish? You see what he says in verse 13? Don't imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. Is he saying, don't you think that you're not going to be found out here in the palace? Don't think that you're going to escape because you're Jewish just as much as we are. And when the king finds out that you're Jewish by his own law, he must kill you. Is that what he means? It's possible, but I don't think so. And I, I'm not going to be too dogmatic on this, but I think that verse 14, by its very context, indicates that he's not talking about the king or anyone else killing her. I think he's talking about divine judgment. Divine judgment, because he goes on to explain it. Verse 14, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. You want to know what I think he was saying? I think he was saying that if you don't get involved to aid us, we'll still be delivered, but you'll be judged. And what did he mean? Now, I don't think that Mordecai was a godly Jewish man, but I believe that he knew the promises that God had made to Israel. And he knew enough about the Lord that he knew that God would never forsake his people. He knew that deliverance would come. He knew Genesis 12, 3, for I will bless them, Abraham. I will bless them that bless you. And I will curse them that curse you. And I believe what, what Mordecai was saying, even though he didn't use the name of God, he was saying, look, we know the promises that, that God has made to, to his people. Deliverance will come. We don't know how it'll come, but it will come. But if you remain silent, remember, not only has God said he will bless the Jewish people, but he also said he will curse them who curse the Jewish people. And if you remain silent, God will curse you. 
Now, I think in context, that's what he's saying. I think that that would indicate it. Some have taken this to mean that Mordecai was a righteous Jew, that he was one who believed the promises of God and he was righteous because he believed in the Abrahamic covenant. But I don't see this as any different than the Jews in Israel today who, who for the most part, do not have a personal relationship with Christ, but they believe, at least if they're Orthodox or believe the Bible, they believe in the promises of God for Israel. Just because you believe in the promise and future of Israel doesn't mean that you're a uh, redeemed Jewish person, just as it doesn't mean if you're a redeemed Gentile person. This does not indicate that he was a saved person. It simply indicates that he believed that God's promise was accurate. Lots of people who believe God's word to be true who don't know Christ. And the Jewish people have, by and large, maintained this belief that God will save them even through thousands of years of suffering even when they did not have a homeland. How can they maintain such certainty in God's deliverance? Well, it all comes back to the promises that God has made to Israel as a nation. They still hold on to the promises of God. Some years ago, Pastor Steve wrote a book that examined some of these promises to Israel. It's a study that includes a careful consideration of whether Israel has been disqualified from these promises because of their rejection of Jesus, the Messiah. The title of the book is God's Plan for Israel, and it is a helpful study for those who would like to better understand this confidence which many of the Jewish people still hold in God's promises. You can order the book, God's Plan for Israel, when you call us at 727-239-0306. That's 727. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.